So we are journeying through the book of Ephesians. Um, and what we've been able to do is just give an overview of each chapter. Um, so I'm going to attempt to give you an overview of chapter five as the Lord has given to me. Um, but first, I just wanted to just bring us up to speed if you haven't been with us so far. Um, in chapter one, Nikki introduced the letter Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus by reminding us who we are in Christ. In Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing. In Christ, we are predestined for adoption as sons and daughters through Christ Jesus. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. In chapter two, we learn that our salvation came by grace through faith alone. Verse six says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The true gift of salvation is that it doesn't depend upon us. From the strongest to the weakest of us, from the richest to the poorest of us, from the most to the least educated of us, we are all on equal ground when it comes to salvation. At the foot of the cross, we are all the same, just needy Christians. In chapter three, Paul tells us that God re revealed the mystery of the gospel to him, that God has grafted in Gentiles to become heirs and members of the same, bodies, of the same body as the Jews and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He expands upon that theme in chapter four by pleading with the church of Ephesus to walk worthy of the calling to which they have been called to walk together in unity. For the Gentilian Jewish body of Christ, this was proven to be a difficult task. So Paul had to give them instructions on what to do and what not to do anymore. He was teaching them that they needed to see themselves as new creations in Christ Jesus called to live a new life. So chapter five continues with the same message to stop doing what they have been doing with their natural minds, the flesh, what that had been telling them to do and to start doing what God had called them to do, equip them to do and empower them to do through the spirit. He begins with therefore, and we know that therefore is there for a reason. When reading, it tells us that we should go back and see what led up to this transitionary word. In chapter four, verse 25, Paul tells the Ephesians to stop lying. Just stop it. He's like, cut it out. Cut it out. Instead, speak the truth in love because we are all one body now. He tells them to be angry. Go ahead. Have your moment. I get it. We all do. People get on your nerves. It's okay. You can be angry, but you cannot sin to justify it. That's not okay. He tells them to stop, stop stealing. Y'all got to chill with all that stealing. If that's what you used to do to get what you want or get what you needed, you just can't keep doing that. Instead, he tells them to get a job, work with your own hands, do some honest labor. I, you'll feel better. I promise. He goes on to tell them to watch their mouths, to let no corrupt talk come out. Stop slandering. Stop bite, backbiting. Stop telling people's business. Stop cussing and fussing and stuff. Stop talking bad about their neighbors. Stop complaining about everybody. Always allowing gossip to be their company. But instead, Paul tells them to use their words to build one another up, that it may, be, that it may give grace to those who hear. 
to use their words to lift up the brokenhearted instead of tearing them down, to take every opportunity to encourage your coworkers, even if they aren't doing the best job, to let grace be on your tongue, even when your spouse or your children are getting on your last nerve. He tells them to not grieve the Holy Spirit, but to put away wrath and anger and slander and malice. And then he tells them, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ forgave them. Therefore, chapter five, verse one, be imitators of God as beloved children. How do we imitate God? By forgiving one another as Christ Jesus forgave us. To imitate is to follow after, to replicate, to mimic, to do what you see someone else doing. So Paul tells them, imitate God as beloved children. Now, you know, children are the best imitators. We've all seen children put on their mom and dad's shoes and try to walk around the house and look like them. Or we've seen them play with their toys and their trucks and say things that they've heard their parents say or do things that they've heard their parents do. And some of that um, is not worth repeating. And just a side note, if you're driving in the car, watch what you say, because your children are watching. <laughs> anyway, he goes on in verse two to say, um, to walk in love as Christ loved us. What kind of love did Christ have for us? Well, we don't have to wonder because Paul tells us Christ had a sacrificial kind of love for us. The kind that would disregard himself to show regard for us the kind that would empty out himself so that we might be filled. The John 3:16 kind of love. The Romans 5, 7 kind of love, which says, very rarely would anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul sets up the passage by pointing us to Christ's perfect, sacrificial, and holy love for them and asks them to imitate that. But he goes back to that simple and plain teaching as he does in chapter four with do this, not that. So he says sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, they shouldn't even be spoken of. Rude and vile language has no place in the mouth of the believer, but instead let thanksgiving flow from your tongue. Paul has to remind the Ephesians to stop looking over their neighbor's fence at the luscious looking green grass and focus on watering, pruning, and fertilizing their own lawn that they've been entrusted with. Remember we found out in chapter one that Ephesus was a port city, meaning there was lots of life and activity in and around the city. Ephesus was a wealthy city and just like modern times, there were the haves and the have-nots. I imagine parts of the city were bustling with business and trade. They probably had a downtown or a center city close to the harbor where merchants would come and trade their goods. There was probably entertainment and a nightlife, probably restaurant and bars, if you would. There was even a grand theater in Ephesus called the Temple of Artemis. Artemis was the Greek goddess of fertility and was particularly important to the Ephesians. Ephesians worshiped the statues and man-made idols, uh, idols of Artemis 
to help with hunting, chastity, wild animals, childbirth, and fertility. She was seen as a goddess who had control over life. Definitely an idol in direct opposition to the one and only true and living God. It's no wonder that the temple once known as one of the seven wonders of the world was intentionally burned down by Christians and destroyed by an earth earthquake even after they tried to rebuild it. Because God is a jealous God. He said that there should be no other gods before him. So verse 5 tells us that you can be sure that everyone who is sexually immoral or covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6 says, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of dis disobedience. Now, when I read the wrath of God, I tend to pause and take notice. It's like when your mama comes into the room and gives you that look. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I think I probably got some mamas on here who know how to give that look. <laughs> when she comes in and gives you that look, you stop dead in your tracks and you take notice. Well, that's what I do when I read the wrath of God. It's referenced about 600 times, either directly or indirectly, in just the Old Testament alone. So we know that God is serious. Wrath is an emotion that he carries, but his wrath always is seen as a consequence for something that we have done. D.A. Carson said, God's holiness, God's sovereignty, God's love, and the other attributes that are part of his eternal being are always in play. And God's wrath is a function of those attributes when faced with our sins. God in his righteousness must just sin. But because he is righteous, he is, a, he is the perfect judge of sin. So anyway, in verse 7, he says, Therefore, do not become partners with them. Don't do that. Don't walk in disobedience. You already know it's not going to lead to anything good. Instead, walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Walk as children of the light and be pleasing to the Lord. Verse 15 tells us to be mindful of how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Sometimes we like to say it's a praying time, y'all, or we living in perilous days, especially given the current social, political, economic, and even physical climate that we're living in. It's easy to think that we've got it really, really bad, that situations have never been this bad before. And if we can guess, just get through this period, just get through this rough patch, things will get better. We'll be better. People will be better. Well, I'm sorry, friends, but that's just not true. God's word is true. And he tells us that the days are evil. Are is a present tense. So whether you read this yesterday, today, or tomorrow, it's still true. The days are evil because they are filled with sinful people who do evil things. We still walk according to the prince of this world who seeks to use, abuse, and control us all. So, God's command, so God commands us to not be foolish, but to understand what the will of the Lord is and what is God's will. Remember in chapter 4, he told the Ephesians to live together in unity with one another. That is still his will. But he goes on to tell them not to get drunk with wine because that can lead to debauchery. Now, Paul did not say do not drink wine. He said do not get drunk with wine. 
wine was and still is a socially acceptable, uh, acceptable beverage to drink with meals, especially at celebrations. But too much can cause us to behave out of character, to do things we can't control. So just to be clear, God is not legalistic as some denominations interpret this passage of scripture, but he is warning us to be self-controlled by the spirit and not the spirits that we get from the wine and liquor store, okay? All right. But that's not all he says. He reminds the Ephesians to speak well of one another, to greet one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks for one another and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul transitions. He switches, he switches from writing the instructional do's and don'ts to a style of command. In verse 22, Paul commands wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. For those of us who are married, this is not an option. It's a commandment. To submit to our husbands as the church submits to Christ. Submission, by definition, means to yield, to resign, or surrender to the power, will, or authority of another. Now, submission can be a trigger word if we came from the camp where submission is look, look like control and hostility and a bunch of unnecessary demands. Let's be clear that that is not what God is talking about here. The biblical form of submission is actually wives choosing to line up with her husband's leadership and not intentionally resisting his authority. It is a choice. God gives us that freedom, that choice to choose the best and not just the good, to choose the perfect will of unity through submission. That does not mean that we do not have any say in what goes on in the household or we have to lay down all of our thoughts and opinions. As a matter of fact, the Lord greatly values the role of the woman and highly esteems us as equal to the man in character and kinship. But in positions of authority, wives are under the leadership of the husband as Christ is under the leadership of the father. The same way, the same way Christ submitted his will to the father in the garden of Gethsemane and asked for the cup to be removed for not his will, but for God's will to be done and voluntarily gave up his life to satisfy the penalty of sin, wives are asked to submit to our husband's leadership and headship within our family. In doing so, we actually reap the benefits of their sacrifice. Verse 25 lays out what that looks like. The husband is the one asked to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that, she might, that he might present her to himself without spot or blemish. So husbands are called to do the hard work of sacrificial, unconditional love that lays down his life for others. In that way, love is the highest measure of imitating Christ. In doing so, he gains the heart of Christ through wisdom and understanding, grace, patience, kindness, and humility. But not only that, he imitates God's love through protection and jealousy, provision and security. As a husband submits to Christ and imitates his love for his wife, it will be apparent as he loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. When a husband is walking with, filled with, and submitted to the Holy Spirit, his wife will walk in and receive the blessings of that submitted life. If the husband is in the word of God and living out that word, there's no way his family doesn't benefit from that. But this is not an easy task. Why? Because we live in these sin-filled bodies of flesh that war within us to live contrary to the spirit of God. But I'm so thankful that in Christ, the mystery of the gospel has already been revealed. Just like the Jew and the Gentile became one body under the blood of Christ, so has man and his wife. The mystery is that two different people can become one because the power, because of the power revealed through the finished work of the cross. It is already done. So how does this apply to my life? How can I apply this to my walk with Christ? I see three things in this text. One, I see change. Two, commit. Three, challenge. Number one, change. God is calling me to change my old habits, my bad habits, my lifestyle, the way that I've learned to do things and to put on the mind of Christ, to be renewed day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, to be conformed to the image of God and not just my mind, but in my actions. What is God calling you to change? Number two, God is calling me to commit to submit to others. To commit to submission by loving one another. Loving my neighbors, my family, my co-workers, my church family, and even my enemies. To commit to being in relationship in community, in agreement with the one another's around me that God is called to be part of my life for a reason, for a season, or for a lifetime. So my second question is, how are you submitting to the others in your life? Finally, number three, God is calling me to recognize the challenge it is to live a submitted life, whether to God or to man, it is, a, it is a challenge to live submitted. As believers, we, are, we always live in the tension between two worlds, good and evil, to be in the world but not of it, to walk in the spirit but to live in the flesh. The call to submission is not an easy one to bear, but it is a blessed one. And when we do, when our spirit can conquer the flesh, what a freedom we experience to lay down the weight we too often carry and allow God to just be God. So my third question is, what challenges are keeping you from living a submitted life tonight? Let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your instructions being super clear. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that whatever we have need of, um, you have made a way. You have brought your word to the table and asked us to come and dine with you. So Father, I pray that as we uh, hear, you fr hear from you tonight, Lord God, that you would um, let your word uh, 
um, truly resonate within us, Lord Jesus, that we would take away um, the nuggets of truth that you have given to us, Lord God, and that we would apply them, that we might see you more clearly, that we might love you more deeply, that we might serve you more personally. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much, Afrika. Could you, um, is it possible for you to put those questions in the chat? If it's not, you could just repeat them. I or, can do it. Okay. And then if somebody wanted to respond to one or a few of those questions, feel free to unmute and, you know, respond. Thank you, Afrika. So as I think about um, the question, what is God calling, what challenges are keeping me from living a submitted life? Um, if I wanted to lie, I would say everything else is happening around in, in 2020, not me, but everything else, right? The circumstances. But if I told the truth, um, the challenges from keeping me to being, from being submitted, um, you know, it's a daily thing, right? We, we die daily to our flesh. We die moment by moment to our flesh. And, you know, when circumstances, of course, are challenging or difficult, um, the reality of my lack of submission to God's control, his sovereignty, um, just really blares through for me. So I think the ch just it really boils down to not resting in God and not trusting him. Um, I think a couple months ago, I was texting with a friend and um, we were just talking about random stuff, but I knew, I felt like the Lord kept saying, I'm sovereign. Like that was just the thing that he kept bringing before me. And I needed to know that and understand his sovereignty and willingly submit myself to his sovereignty, especially in the context of, worrying about things that are beyond my control. Um, so I think that um, he's, he's still challenging me in that way to trust who he is and to trust his sovereignty. Like Jesus had a lot to say negatively to and about those people who did not trust 
who he said he was. You know, God has something to say about a lack of faith in who he is. Like, like that's, that's wickedness in many regards, right? And so I think God is really just calling me to rest in his sovereignty and his godness, you know, and to submit myself to that and stop um, <laughs> trying to do everything, you know, but just to rest in him that he's got it. You know, I don't have to figure it out. He's got it. I liked how Afrika, when she was introducing the chapter uh, verses one and two, and she uh, speaks of walk in love as Christ loved 